All right, welcome back to another week from the bench. Uh, we are excited to get this thing going. Uh, we have a great guest today. Um, but before we bring her on, why don't we toss around this question? What have you seen in terms of the growth of the game or the biggest changes you've seen over the last 20 years that, that you've been part of it? Jesse, why don't you start? All right, I'll jump in. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing for, for me is the fact that now opportunities have, have grown to as a profession. I know when I first started, I remember getting in and, you know, I talked a little bit about that story and, you know, I'm at my alma mater and it was probably about a decade before my parents stopped asking me if I wanted to go out and get another job. I remember my mom would literally call me up like, hey, you have that degree, uh, you know, in business. Do you, your dad could get you a job at the company, right? And so it almost took, that's, I think, the thing now that I've seen that's been almost the biggest growth of like, you tell people you're a, a basketball coach in women's basketball and it's, and it's like, oh, of course, why not? I would, why would I doubt that? So I think for me, that's been the thing that uh, you look at. It's like a legitimate career. No one questions that. It's, yep, you can go do that. So um, I, I think the, the, the reliability, the, the financial stability, the, 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 you know, job security may not be the right word to use but sometimes in some situations. But, but I think that's the biggest thing for me, the growth of like where now no one goes, oh, Oh, you're a women's basketball coach, and and so what are you doing next? You know, I, I think now the the, the legitimate nature of, of the sport is is a thing I think that I've I've seen grow so much. Tony, I think you you're going to go with your, what you what are your thoughts on that, Tony? Yeah, I uh, I think it goes back to our college days too. I, I would agree because I'm in the uh, you know that '90 you know I was in college in the late '90s, so I was part of the you know kind of the beginning of the ABL, uh, you know, and then obviously, which was the precursor before the, uh, the uh, WNBA, and then obviously the WNBA comes on. But, you know, kids that I played with at, at Tennessee, I think really kind of started to, to, to grab the media's attention and all of a sudden bring that bigger aspect. I mean, obviously the team at Tennessee that I was involved with won three national championships in a row uh, my, my four years there. And then you had, you know, you had superstars that came with that. You had Shamika Holslaw, you had Tamika Catching, Tamika Randall. I mean, so you had a lot of name recognition and a lot of publicity, as well as the beginnings of the, you know, Tennessee-Connecticut rivalry was, was just getting going during that time. So I think the, the 1990s, you know, was kind of when we all got started. And, and I think that was kind of the, the media explosion kind of into women's basketball that to your point, made it acceptable that, you know, I'm going to be a women's basketball coach, you know, and this is, this was a cool gig to, to be with. It was the hot thing. And, um, you know, and obviously the, the, the media attention has gone, you know, from a, from a level where people could see it and, uh, and then moving it on. Cause I think really there was only a few games prior to that, even on television. And if I remember correctly, it maybe was, the women's final four games in the early nineties were on. I remember uh, Tennessee in 91 playing against Virginia. That was Don Staley and uh, the Burge uh, twins and uh, Tennessee um, had uh, um, Nikki Caldwell and uh, Nikki McCray. I mean, they just had a really, really good group in 91. They won a title. So I remember that was my first experience watching, but I think from just 90 early nineties to mid nineties, it took off. And then obviously with the help of ESPN, it's, it's gone further. Um, so I think the media attention that went with, went with women's basketball back in the nineties from the pro leagues and through all the college uh, hype, I think uh, really helped propel the sport forward um, into the two thousands and now to where we are now, where we're, you know, WNBA setting records for people watching the uh, drafts uh, online. So um, I agree. I think that the evolution kind of got caught up in, in rivalries and personalities and people. And then that's kind of where women's basketball has always been. It's a, it's a, it's the stories about the people and the players and the coaches that have kind of, and the, you know, the families of the people that have kind of driven the popularity of the sport. What do you think, Gab? Yeah, I would agree. The, you know, the coverage uh, and, 
the exposure that women's basketball has gained since, you know, I've started in this profession uh, 20 years ago has come a long way. And it has a lot to do with those personalities and those storylines. Uh, I remember when I started out at the University of Hawaii, we had the premier 18 tournament in the country with the Rainbow Wahine Basketball Classic. And, you know, just to remember when I started, the names of players that came through that tournament, uh, Candice Wiggins, uh, Lindsey Whalen, uh, Nicole Powell, Brittany Griner. There were a lot of great players. Uh, Diana Taurasi and the UConn teams actually came through and played. Uh, there was an actual rematch of Oklahoma and Connecticut the following year in our tournament. Um, but back then in the mid nineties, there wasn't as much exposure and coverage of great games like that. And now there's definitely an accessibility for the fans, um, for other coaches. If you want to tune in, there is a game for you ready to watch. You have the Pac-12 network, you have the Big Ten network, ACC, SEC, all these networks. And then you have the online platforms as well where you have games streamed uh, and whatnot. So everything is available and the exposure and coverage that we're getting continue to improve uh, and the storylines continue to uh, draw in new fans, I think, every year. And, and it's fun to see where this is going to go in the next couple of years because you have some uh, big names kind of on their way out, passing the torch to some of that new wave of uh, next level professionals to try to take that torch and kind of, again, continue to grow the game. So what about you, Brian? Well, I think the where, where I go is, is really opportunities, right? I mean, like back in the day, I think we all started as the restricted earnings coach, you know, where it's full-time job but part-time pay so to speak and, and I know for me that was the last year of it because then then you know that third spot was kind of a full-time thing but you know over those 20 years then you you have dobos popping up then you have video coordinators popping up then you have you know the the, the performance or the development coach you know pop up and I think that just shows I mean I think the game is is healthy right now um now, when, when I was, Tony, you, you alluded to this back in the, you know, late, late 80s, early 90s, you know, the women's basketball championship game was on ESPN2, right? Like, like you had to kind of search for, you know, that, that second ESPN channel type of thing. But I, I think that is where, you know, I look at it. A lot of conversations I'm having right now is with like managers, video coordinators, just asking like how how can we, how can I get to the next level? How can I become a coach? How can I, you know, move up the ladder and, and move those seats, you know, move, move over seats. And I think that just shows, I mean, it like, I think more people want to be part of this. More people want the, uh, the opportunity to, you know, to coach a game, to empower women, to, to be part of something that that's very unique in the sense of, you know, Jesse, to your point, like it took a while for my dad to be like, Oh, okay. So shirts in a short, Shorts and a t-shirt is a job and it is a career, you know, type of thing. So I, I just think it's a great time. It's a great time to be part of this game. I, I think, you know, there's, there's a historical piece of just that pendulum swinging and, and it's just creating more momentum. And I think that's the one thing that the women's game can do even more is, is really just push and forge those personalities because I think there's a lot of great coaches. There's a lot of great players. And I think in the end, that's what will create another wave of momentum for people being part of it and perhaps a, another position, which just allows people to be part of it, you know? So I, I think the game's in a good spot, you know? Um, so here, here's one more question. And really like when you think about the game, when you think about kind of that, that piece that, that got you in that we talked about a couple weeks ago, like what are you most proud of in the sense of that legacy that you were part of? that, that maybe kickstarted your, your career. And we'll just go around again. So, so Jesse, why don't you kick us off? All right. I, I mean, I think that's a, it's an interesting point because I think now that we've been in it long enough, you get a chance to sort of have those interactions, you know? And um, I mean, I, I think the coolest thing, and again, we're in the social media age and it, I think one of the things that's so fun now, and I'm sure we all have that is, you know, former players from, 15 years ago that have their families that are being successful, that have their jobs, that you sort of get to stay in touch that way and you get a random connection. I know one of our former players from Pacific Union, her and her husband are actually in coaching for a 
bicycle racing team here in Southern California. I mean, and, and I was having a long conversation with her the other day and, you know, she's using stuff in her profession that lean back onto practices that we had had. And I think that I think is the coolest thing that, that now uh, what we've been a part of and then to be able to, and I'm, I'm thankful for social media because of that. I mean, I wouldn't be able to keep in track with these kids as often, you know? And so, um, so that's the stuff I think that, that part of that legacy is, is really, is really fun. Gavin, what do you think? Like to echo those sentiments, it's being able to check in on a kid you coached my 10 years ago and now they have a family um, and they still keep in touch and they follow your career. Even though I might be at a different school, uh, they continue to stay invested where, wherever I go. Um, and, you know, one case that has come up just recently, um, when I started coaching, uh, even before that as a manager and a GA, um, me and my roommates, we lived next to somebody on the team. Um, and her name was Karina Greeny, and she just actually lost her six-year battle with cancer. And um, it, it's just, you'll never forget kids like that. Uh, you'll never forget their smile and their impact on you. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it, a tragedy like that has brought and reconnected so many other people uh, from that program that within the last couple of weeks uh, has been cool to kind of just see where they are uh, and reach out. So th that's the, the thing for me is legacy. When people talk about legacy or what you're proud of, it's really the relationships that you start with kids with the recruiting process until they're done. And then once they graduate, you still remain in contact with them. You still stay connected. Uh, and that's the reward. Uh, that's the thing. A lot of coaches might get into this profession and, you know, they give it their all and then they don't even realize that the reward and the thing that's going to make you smile and reminisce about all the good things, uh, it's going to become, it's going to come a little after uh, your career might be done. Yeah, I, again, I would echo that. I've got kind of a, a double, double whammy on that one because a lot of my classmates that I went to school with at Tennessee have remained coaches. Uh, you know, Kelly Harper's the head coach at Tennessee. Naya Butts is an assistant at Kentucky. Kyra Ellis, the assistant at Kentucky. Both, you know, they all people that I, you know, played with. So, you know, I, I get to, you know, stay in contact with my college, you know, friends and, and teammates, so to speak, you know, being a practice player for them. And, um, you know, we can go and talk about old times and, you know, talk about who beat who and one-on-one -on -one and, you know, and all those kind of fun conversations. Um, but, but that camaraderie, you know, will, will stay with us, you know, kind of forever. And uh, I would echo the other the guys. I mean, just the players. You know, I we talk about you know all of the kids that that you coach, and you know I can go back, you know, to my beginning and 22 years ago. I can talk about kids that I coached that I still talk to. Um, you know, and again we talk about their families and their children and being at weddings. I mean, that's one of the things that I've enjoyed maybe more than anything is just being able to go to weddings and get the birth announcements. And, um, you know, a lot of times weddings happen when we're on the road recruiting and all that, but, uh, but the ones that you, you know, I've been able to attend, I've attended and, um, just to be even thought of to be, you know, important enough to come back and, and be there. And, um, it's huge. And so, you know, those are all, uh, wonderful things to, to have in your life. And if you're not doing this for, um, you know, uh, to love the people and have the, you know, and, and create relationships with the people. Um, it's not a great profession to be in because, uh, you know, it, it's all about people, the people you work with and the people that you, that you teach. And hopefully, you know, those are relationships that last uh, your whole life. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's why we're in it. Right. Is, is it's, Unfortunately, we talked about this before. It's a very transactional thing, college basketball, right? Like here's the scholarship and now you have to play and, you know, whatnot. But I, I think, you know, those coaches who, who have allowed or forged or, you know, just created the relational piece of, of what we get to do, um, they're the ones, right? They're the ones that, that have those players continue to reach out and, and I thought, you know, for me personally, this, this year, you know, with my first year back um, at Pepperdine in terms of in the WCC where, where I just call it home for me, but, you know, being able to see former players, you know, where, where, wherever we're playing or, 
or seeing former players who are now coaches that you have to coach against. I mean, that, that, that's so special, you know, in the sense of just like the longevity that you've been part of the game, but at the same time that, you know, when you think back of those players who are coaching or those players, when, when you're sitting down, you know, having a glass of wine and, and you're just like, tell me your story type of thing. What are you doing now? And it all makes sense, right? Like, like, they, they haven't stopped thinking the way they were back in the day when they were players. So I think that's, that's a unique thing, you know, and we're, we're lucky to obviously be part of the game. So with that, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we got our special guest coming on next. Uh, we will be right back. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody, to From the Bench. We are now joined by Sue Favor. For some of you people who don't know, uh, Sue is an educator, writer, very popular women's basketball blogger. Uh, her Twitter account is uh, the one that I go to and probably my most popular in terms of coverage of women's basketball. She does a phenomenal job. She's been doing what she's done, uh, covering the game, uh, 1982. Uh, so we have a lot to learn and uh, pick her brain as we go through this episode. Uh, but Sue, Give us a little bit uh, of your story in terms of how you came to do what you do. Uh, what drew you to the game uh, with your love of basketball and have been in your successful position uh, at this point? Well, um, first of all, thank you guys for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to be with you on the broadcast. I appreciate that. I do really enjoy, obviously, covering the game. Um, I have been a connoisseur of the game since 1982. I haven't really been covering it since 1982, but um, um, got on board pretty early, I guess you could say. Um, the story, like the the origin of me actually going to my first, you know, women's basketball game kind of came from not such a positive place, but man, it took me to places that I never, ever, ever dreamed of. Um, when I was uh, in 1981, a classmate of mine in junior high who was my same age born not too far from my birthday um, when we were 14 um, committed suicide and she was you know my age we worked together in our class and whatever and it just obviously really devastated me and the entire school because that just that wasn't really a thing back then in the 80s you know and um, it was a shock and so I kind of went into a, a weird place and my dad, my beautiful sports-loving dad, who loved me so much, he was trying to find ways to bring me up and cheer me up and give me some hope and give me some life or whatever. And so he took me to University of Oregon basketball, women's basketball games, because they were having a great year that year. They had uh, Bev Smith, who was an All-American that year. They had Allison Lang, a, Cana a Canadian who was outstanding. And they had a nice little squad, kind of like the squad they have today and um, started taking me to games, and it was magic, you guys. It was like I had never really seen, and you got to remember, this is the early 80s. This isn't now. I'd never really seen powerful, strong women like that, and, you know, the crowds in Eugene are, were crazy back then, just like they are now. That They got Matt Court just stomping, stomping so hard it was shaking, and it was empowering. I remember, one, I remember at one point looking up at the Raptors like this, and I'm like, this is freaking incredible. So I was a I was an addict from from jump. So that year, 1982, they had the first um, NCAA women's basketball championship in the history of the sport. And there was Oregon made the cut. They made the first round. They lost to Missouri in the first round, but they still made the tournament. So it was a big thing. I watched all the way through to the end. I was watching Kim Mulkey with the braid lead her team to that first win over Cheney State. And uh, yeah, so from then I was a lifer. I was a, a journalist for a while full time. I did cover sports. Um, I've also been a personal trainer. I've been an educator. I started covering the game for real in about 12, 13 years ago. And um, kind of in a small way, I worked for a couple of different websites. And then I just had, had a big enough following at that point to kind of take it out of my own. And so that's what I decided to do. And um, I guess that's my story. I watched everything, you guys. I watched college, WNBA, pro. I remember the birth of the death of the ABL. The birth of the WNBA was very exciting. So it's been a heck of a ride. And um, 
this sport has given me so much life and joy and love. It inspired me to be a strong woman. It inspired me to inspire other young women to be strong women. And um, I think once you are a woman too, and you get into sports, it does make you a stronger woman. I mean, I think you've all heard the same studies that I have about ex-female athletes tend to be CEOs more often than other women. Hey man, if you live it in sport, you're going to tend to live it off the court or off the bases or whatever sport you play as well. So I just need basketball to come back right now, obviously, of course. <laughs> so Sue, that, thank you for that story. I mean, that just kind of gives us a, a kind of a, a natural segue into, okay, you got your start in the eighties when, you know, NCAA women's basketball was starting to become a, a hot topic and then obviously pushing into the the pro days in the 90s I guess from the inception of when you started covering in the 80s to now what are the biggest differences from that point at that time to, to where we are now well I guess the game grew up for better or for worse you know it was it's so much more deliberate now. In the 90s was when strength and conditioning started to become a scientific endeavor with periodized programs. By the time I was getting my master's degree in 2000, I was interning at the University of Washington with our strength coaches. And, you know, we were learning, I was learning about how to periodize your program for the time of the year. Um, you know, kids used to take the summer off. Kids would go home for the summer and whatnot, and they'd show up in the fall. Even, you know, Reading Pat Summits raised the roof about the 1997-1998 championship team. All those hot superstars, including two of the three meets, showed up in the fall of 1997, you know. And now we have um, do multiple positions. Um, the strength and conditioning is down to a science. You graduate from high school in May or June, and the next week you're at your college having summer classes and having a bridge program. Um, kids are in those, started out as guards. It's there we go. Sorry, we lost you there. I was uh, actually thinking about that, the 97, 98, like that group. I was, uh, that was yep. my junior year. So, and I tr try to explain, like we talk about working camps as coaches and I, I went back down to school to work the camps in the summer and some of the best basketball games I've ever played in were some of those pickup games during the summer because you had, yeah, you know, Vicki Hall would come down and work camp. I mean, you had all the players at Tennessee, you had players from other schools. So you had these great, great yep. games that were going on uh, during that time. So weight training and stuff came in in the 90s. Yeah, what was it was so – it was really – Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point, Tony, because it was really informal. And then, you know, by the time I got to get in my graduate degree, there was, oh, the, the only the strength coach can go in at this time from this week to this week, and only you can only have – visual practice from this week too so it's all very scientific now and um uh the kids get into the game at a lot earlier age you know you used to hear later ages and now you used to call me to hear oh I picked up a basketball when I was five and so you know kids are taught guard skills then they grow up to be six feet six and then they have to be a post but they still know the guard skills so they can still dribble down the court such as Candace Parker such as anybody <laughs> right now and um so, you know, that's why our, the game has kind of evolved into a quote-unquote positionless game. Um, I think Candace was probably the one of, if not the first player to really do that to the full extent that, that, was, that she did as far as, oh, I can grab the rebound and dribble it up the court and not even bother to pass to the point guard and, and just execute the play and whatnot. Uh, and now it's not, it's not uncommon to see that now, is it? It's, you know, see your post, drill a three, um, see your guard crash the boards and snatch a rebound. I mean, you know, the game is definitely obviously more athletic because of the strength and conditioning piece and um, just far more skilled, you know. So, so as we know, you know, the, the Jordan docuseries 
is out and I'm going to kind of stay in the nineties right now. Um, what would be the storyline if, if we can do a, a 10 part documentary on women's basketball in the nineties that kind of sets up today, what, what would be kind of those hot topics that are, are kind of a must see for these players to see now and perhaps the coaches to see now? Ooh, that's a good, see now, it's, usually I don't get off on hypotheticals, but this is one hypothetical I can all the way be on board with. This is great. Um, you know, I would say, obviously, we got to hit the legends like Pat Summit and, um, and Muffet McGraw and um, even Gina Ariema because they all were given, you know, obviously way more time to build their programs than coaches are today. You had Pat was 13 years into it before she got her first natty. And then um, I think Muffet was 14 years into it. And so, you know, that would probably be the starting point is, is from some of those greats and how they, they built the programs. You could even dip back into the 80s a little bit and just bounce off of Louisiana Tech because they kind of were the, the founders of the game in a way, you know. Um, but, yeah, maybe just the evolution of the game, the 90s, as far as starting to bring out what we would call some great standout players. You had kind of more of the, the you know, with obviously with the exception of like Cheryl Miller in the 80s, you had more, a lot of role players and whatnot. Um, and in the nineties, you started to get some, some bonafide stars, you know, Lobo and swoops and all those people. And then, um, probably, you know, obviously you have to go into the birth of the ABL and the, and, uh, the birth of WNBA. Um, that was a very exciting time, um, as you all know. And in a way, I feel like women's basketball was further along in the late nineties than it is now somehow. So I would say it, you know, Probably that I, I would say that, and then I still would support like maybe a whole two parts on the comets alone, the Houston Comets, just all they went through to cap to to capture four consecutive championships, including the death of one of their players right in the middle of the season. Pretty phenomenal story, including obviously three of the greatest players of the game. Sue, can you you mentioned uh, so many great nuggets right there, and talking about the, the stories there. I, I feel like you have like four books in the works right there that you could write just on on everything you talked about. Um, a good idea. When you when you mentioned uh, some of the earlier, you mentioned some of the players that you saw, Bev Smith and 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 Mulkey and those guys. Talk about when watching them play and then and, and, and you can go farther with with some of these but watching them play and then and now watching them coach uh did you did you see some of the same things in them as players as you see as them as coaches now as or is and is there anything that has surprised you that you would you, if you look back when they were playing to to now like wow i didn't know that they would be like that as a coach or something like that talk about maybe some of those transitions as we look back at, at some of the the people that are that have helped her grow. That's a good question, actually. Um, Kim Mulkey was was very captivating. She was obviously the point guard, and she was the floor leader, and she was pretty intense on the court. And so her personality as a coach hasn't surprised me at all. She's extremely intense as a coach, as you know, um, with all the jacket throwing and the passion and the drama and all that stuff that we always loved about her as a player and she just brought that it's obviously not guaranteed that being a good player is going to make you a great coach in fact I actually believe that's the exception not the rule I found that and I guess I'm segueing but I found that for the most part the best coaches tend to be not the star players with a few exceptions such as Kim and then Don Staley, who I'll get to in a second. But um, usually a lot of these great coaches are the ones that didn't get a lot of minutes and had to work for every minute they got. And so they had to really be smart about it. And so they can diagram all these plays, Scott Ruick, such as, well, maybe some of the shorter people, right? But Don Staley is um, amazing. She's She's always been a pit bull, like, any time she's ever played. And then I did a story on when they won the championship. I did a story. I talked to Lisa Boyer, her associate head coach, who's been with her for so many years. And Lisa said – I could find the story if you wanted to. Lisa said that she basically had to tell Dawn in her first few years – after her first couple of years of coaching to kind of change her approach because she was going at the kids in a kind of a more of an old-school way. 
So she had to change her approach. And so once she did that, um, then she started seeing some real results. And I thought that was pretty cool because for many reasons, A, because Lisa was, Lisa felt comfortable enough to be completely honest and B, because Dawn heard the feedback and she was, and she accepted it and she didn't reject it. And um, look what she got. So, you know, that part we didn't know about Dawn. We just knew that she was a hell of a competitor, but um, that was very impressive. And I, I would say that probably of all the players and that turned to coaches, those two have impressed me the most for the ver for those reasons. They've both been able to adjust. And you all know this. I mean, Tony and, and Gavin as coaches, you know, the most successful coaches are the ones that are able to adjust to changes, such as Tara Vanderveer, who literally changes her offense every single year based on her personnel. That's amazing. <laughs> With that, uh, you mentioned covering Dawn uh, and their championship run at South Carolina. Um, off the top of your head, um, what are some of your favorite storylines that you've covered or individuals that you've covered for whatever reason? Uh, give me a top two or three. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a question to come right off the top. Um, favorite storylines. You know, that's a difficult question, you guys, because we have so many – so many amazing people from around the country. Um, I would say obviously one of the saddest storylines that I've, that I've ever dealt with is obviously the death of Pat Summit, but that story that I wrote on uh, right the day before she passed got more, more hits than I've ever had any story, any one story ever get because, you know, she just made more of an impact than anybody else. Basically her, um, all of her players made a pilgrimage to see her those final two or three days before she passed so they could say goodbye. And um, that story, I posted it. it she passed on a, in the middle of the night on a Tuesday morning in June. And I, I posted it at 4 o'clock on that Monday. I left the house. And I came back at 8, at eight and it already had 20,000 hits. And then by the next morning, 40,000 hits just off that one story. So um, I would say that even though that was – probably the saddest thing for me in women's basketball that I've ever seen. Um, and you know what? I don't know. It's hard for me to go from there, you guys, because there's just been so many great uh, people. I would say, you know, stories of hard workers really make me happy. Um, I, li I liked talking to Stella Johnson this past year who for writer who basically just worked her butt off and then got drafted into the WNBA. Um, I like, you know, stories I wrote about Brittany Sykes a few years ago, who's over, who overcame two ACL tears to, to do what she did. Um, I guess that is a good, that is a fascinating theme for me about why, why some injuries take some players out and some injuries don't. Um, Tamika Catchings has had all the major injuries that any player could have. And she's, that didn't ever seem to, to slow her role at all. <laughs> Other players, I've seen them get one injury and, um, and then that's kind of it for them. They're never quite the same. So I guess the psychology of the game, anytime I'm into the psychology of the game is really a fun, is a fun look for me. Um, on the pro side, it was always fun covering when the uh, Minnesota Lynx and Los Angeles Sparks were going at it those few years when they kept going at it back and forth because um, it was just interesting to talk to the two different teams and, and their whole perspectives were completely different going into the games um completely so that was always fun <laughs> it's funny we talked about rivalries a little bit it's fun and uh, you talked about you know pat's book raise the roof so i'm actually on page like 182 in that book i'm the guy that broke tamika's nose that that year that they went undefeated in practice I didn't feel so bad about it, though, because she went for, like, 30. Wow. Like, the next stage went for 30. So I was like – so Meek and I were joking about it afterwards. I'm like, look, I'll break your nose every week. It'll be great. But, no, I didn't want to do that. So. I mean, I felt – Good old-fashioned trash talking. I felt no, absolutely – No, I think um, – I did I, – I know most uh, – the, the popular opinion is that Diana Taurasi is the GOAT of the WNBA, but I personally believe it's Tamika because she finished in – the top 10 in four statistical all time in the four, four statistical categories by the time she left the leagues. And so to me, that's, that's goatness. But anyway, 
Yeah, hard to find, you know, and I, I still use her to this day with coaching kids is that she's been the hardest worker consistently of anybody I've ever been around. In a yeah, practice. yeah, and, and, her, you know, her work ethic is second to none. Legendary. Um, and actually, you know what, that brings up another, that brings up another point. Um, I've, I helped with, I helped at her uh, coaching clinic here a few years ago. And so I kind of covered that live and reported on that. And that was fun to see her interact with the kids and see her do her thing. Cause usually she does all that in Indianapolis, but I got to see how she did it hands-on here at one of her, um, workshops here. And, um, it was great. She's just an amazing person. She really is just top to bottom. One of the best people in the world. Um, yeah. You made a great point earlier when you were talking about Lisa and Dawn and that story. Uh, and, and I think it's what we talk about on this show quite often is about, you know, mentoring young, young coaches. And we were talking, like you brought up the story about Lisa Boyer being able to tell Dawn, like, Hey, you know, you might want to think about this. And, you know, in our profession, a lot of times it's hard to do that because, or you think it's exceptional, but I think that's true loyalty, right? That's, that's her stepping out of herself and say, look, you know, this might not be the most popular thing I'm going to tell you, Don, but this may help your program going forward. And I think that's what we try to talk about in this program is like try to get young coaches to be and, and even older coaches to show that loyalty back and forth. And, and can you talk about any other mm. partnerships that you think have been that successful through the years? Well, you know what, obviously what recently, what comes to mind most recently is the partnership between Neil Ivey and Martha McGraw. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the press conference when they, when they introduced her. I was watching it live, obviously, as a member of the media, but um, man, that was really just amazing. That was really touching to see the complete support she has from her son and the complete support she has from Muffet McGraw. So, you know, I thought that was pretty special. And then I know Tara Vanderveer has always listened to her coaches. I, it seems like I always hear the best coaches say, I want to, I want to, you know, talk to the committee before I make a decision or something to the effect of, I want to make sure that I'm surrounded with people who are smarter than me or some such thing. Um, I think that's great. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to be the head coach, but you know, you got to also realize that other people can see that maybe some different things, some things in a different way that you don't. I personally believe that if I have a big decision to make, I will sometimes consult my committee because um, then maybe they've seen something in a way that I hadn't thought about. And so, you know, again, it just seems like all the great coaches, but yeah, the, 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 I think Notre Dame's in great hands for what they have. And if, um, and if Tara Vanderveer, I can't imagine Tara Vanderveer not coaching. But I'm sure someday she might decide to just go out on her jet ski and stay there. Um, but she'll probably have some great people waiting to fill in her gigantic shoes because she's she has had the same people by her side for a minute. You know, it's kind of nice to see that these days when it seems like everybody's so disposable. It's kind of refreshing. Well, it's funny you bring up uh, Tara because uh, you know Charmin Smith's birthday was on Saturday, and I have a Peloton, and I, so I jumped in on that whole thing. And Tara, she, she beat me by I don't know how. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, like I, I, I this is the first time I'm actually saying that, so that that's where I'll kind of leave it as well. But um, <laughs> so wait, you went at it with Tara Vanderveer? Wow. Like, like the hashtag chasing Tara was like real. Like I, I just. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say what place I came in, but I wasn't last. That's for sure. She's uh, super competitive, though. You know, people people might overlook her because she's got such a steely veneer, but she's super competitive and she's funny too. She has a great sense of humor, and people don't understand that. Well, and and that's where I kind of want to want to take it is is we have these pockets of greatness, right? Like I think the Pac-12 is just rising right now because there's so many just good programs and and good coaches yes. and whatnot. The East Coast has had its thing, the Midwest. So, so talk to us about, like, the style of play and what does that mean to the game and, and you know, kind of like – and you could refer to the coaches, I guess, that, that are, you know, incorporating those, those uh, philosophies. But, like, what have you seen change over the last even 15 years, 10 years, 15 years, where, where now we're getting the rise of just great basketball from all over the country? Well, that's a great question, um, Brian. You know, the SEC, for example, has always been known for its physical play. 
And, you know, I was even told by one of the Dallas Wings fans that they, they liked Satu Sabali, but they were hoping for, you know, somebody from the SEC who could throw people down on the ground. And I was like, wow, okay. But see, that's the thing, though. Um, <laughs> you know, we have more diversity in the game now than just that. We have, you know, all kinds of players. We have multi-skilled players like Satu Sabali. We have international players, well, like Satu Sabali. And um, just the whole thing, you know, every, it, it's just kind of, it's, it's mixing together now. And where we used to see West Coast players leave for other parts of the country, they stay home now because um, it's fine. It's fine to play on the West Coast. It's Pac-12 is the best, the, the, the most challenging conference in the country uh, at the moment. So I don't know. I just think a lot of, you know, programs have brought in the international players and uh more players have had exposure to USA basketball. So they learn different things from different parts that, you know, they, you see all these players, I'm sure you all see this on social media. You look up and they tag somebody. You're like, Oh, I didn't know this person. I didn't know if she knew that person. Like, Oh, okay. Oh, we roomed together in USA basketball in 2001 when we were toddlers and all this stuff. And so, you know, Oh, so they learn from each other. They learn from the people overseas. So it's kind of cool. Like you have, yeah, you have some players like Kennedy Carter who can do the Euro step, um, stuff like that. You have all these skills. And so I think it's kind of, it's in the process of blending and migrating a little bit more. So. I think that's such a great point. And, and I sort of want to touch back on that too. And, and I will second your, your conversation about Tara being fortunate enough to be a video coordinator for her for a season and being on in the wow. room there and, you know, and to Brian's point, she's really good at the bike because she's been on one for a lot of times. Every time she would just go out in Palo Alto and before she even came in the office, had already been on the bike for two hours. So, Brian, she's probably got a little longevity on you on the bike. So you got some work to do. But uh, so talk about uh, you talk about Tamika and for you kind of the go uh, into to Diana. And now we move forward to to the kids that are getting drafted and, and becoming uh, the face of the sport, you know, maybe in the pro ranks, but really almost to the men's side, you think of guys that are going to the NBA, sort of that their time in college developed their brand. Maybe talk a little about the evolution that you see there. And maybe that's why maybe people don't know Tamika as well as they knew Diana, as well as they're going to know Sabrina, et cetera, et cetera. Like maybe talk about what your observation uh, of that evolution is. That's a great point. You know, um, that I would definitely, definitely concur with you on that. The quote unquote branding or star developing or whatever you want to call it definitely starts in college now, whereas it was, it was, is an afterthought before that's for sure. I would say, man, maybe even, maybe even starting it, I don't know, Brianna Stewart in 2016 or, or Asia Wilson, you know, by 2017 when South Carolina won that championship, you already knew who these people were and they were already, a thing by the time they graduated from college. And so, you know, obviously Sabrina is already a thing and she hasn't even played, she hasn't even shown up for a pro practice yet. She was on, uh, what was she on yesterday? Some Nike ad, they're giving away stuff for healthcare workers. And she's just up in there in the video with all the rest of the big brand namers because everybody already knows who she is by first name. And so um, it's, it's great. You know, there's, uh, it gives women a chance to, you know, have some financial success in that area where they didn't before and have some viability because, you know, it's great. Women are definitely taking steps forward. They're getting a lot more respect than they used to. And it's nice to see that people know people can talk about it. I have friends, conversations with my guy friends about, about women's basketball all the time. And we have good conversations about it and they already know about all these people and all this stuff. And so it's really great to see. I can't wait to see this next class play oh my gosh I'm really hoping for a, at least part of a season you guys because this class is too good to just sit there for three months my goodness don't you guys want to see them play I sure do man absolutely can't wait for basketball to get back <laughs> um I know last thing, yes <laughs> uh last thing to kind of uh wrap up our conversation uh as we mentioned earlier uh we want to try to grow grow the bench uh, and this is a segment of it uh, from the bench. But for those aspiring young coaches just breaking in to the college ranks and getting their feet wet, uh, you've witnessed a lot of 
success stories. You've witnessed maybe some people who weren't as successful, but from your seat, what are some qualities that you've seen from the good ones, whether they started out uh, as a director of operations and worked their way up the ladder, or they were given an opportunity at an early age, but like what qualities stand out for you that maybe some of the younger coaches breaking in can, can maybe learn from? Ooh, that's an excellent question, Gavin. Obviously, step one would be to know the game. And as we previously discussed, be willing to change with the changes that are in the game. Don't be hung up on schemes that worked for you once. Just because it worked for you in 2012 doesn't mean it's going to work for you right now. Um, the game is definitely constantly changing. So you, you have to be aware of that. And then um, two, Tara Vanderveer is always aware of her personnel. So be aware of your personnel and what they're bringing to the team, what they're bringing to the table, which also changes every year. And you do need to build relationships with your players. You can't overlook that. You can't just scream at people anymore and, and think that that's going to work. You have to, know, you have to know the players. You have to assist the players. Young people, and I can tell you this from personal experience from dealing with them, young people are quite different than they were even, in, even 15 years ago. Um, quite different. So you just have to know, you know who they are how to, how, um, and um, how to reach them how to motivate them. I think that's one thing that maybe young coaches might need to hear. You do need to be successful. You need to find a way to motivate your players. And the best coaches are the ones that can balance all of those characteristics effectively. And it's not just a one and done. I mean, you have to keep working on it. And um, you do, you have to fire up your players. If you, there's plenty of good coaches that have gotten fired because their personality is, or, or their energy is just low. And they have all the knowledge and, and everything like that. But if you, if you, quote, unquote, if you can't get your, you know, run a wall, if you, your kids should be able to want to run through a wall for you, as they say, um, then you're probably going to win some things. If you ask Don Staley's teams, you know, they're going to run through a wall for her, for sure, you know. Um, trying to think of another coach that you could say. Vic Schaefer's kids would run through a wall for him. He's a great motivator. Um, these are some of my favorite. I love Vic, um, but people like that. <laughs> so, uh, Sue, in one word, uh, what is the state of the game? Ooh, the state of the game. One word. Dang, Brian. Um, <laughs> growing. I would say it's growing. And one word for me would be excited about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just see so much involvement just kind of on all the things we've talked about, you know, um, visibility and, um, skill development, heightened awareness, you know, from everyone about it. Obviously you're always going to see some blowback, but, you know, I actually think that, uh, when you hear the blowback from some of these people, that's actually a good sign. That means they're paying attention to you. So if, if you're bothering those few minority of men that like to say stuff, then you're probably doing something right. <laughs> well, we, uh, we definitely appreciate uh, you being on the show. Um, I I'm speaking for the group, but I'm going to speak for, for all coaches out there. Thank you for being part of the game. Um, I, th I think it's well documented that, uh, you know, what the historical value is from the game. And, and I think you've added so much wealth and so much experience and, and hopefully you'll come back with, with us at some point and maybe talk a little bit more on the WNBA once it gets started. That's really kind of you, Brian. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I love this game so much. And um, so I really appreciate it. And I, I, um, I will continue to do that. I just wanted, I just like to get information to people and tell the story of the game as best I can. So if I'm helping anybody to, in that regard, then that's, that's, it's a good day for me. So thanks for having me on you guys. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Thank Sue. You, Sue. Welcome back. Everybody from the bench had a great conversation with someone who's been covering the game for a long time and has brought up many of the great reference points uh, about the growth of our game. And I loved how she, she put that in that, in her answer to, to the one word. When we talk about growth, uh, over the weeks, we've talked about the topic of, uh, you know, that, that transactional versus transformational 
coaching aspect. And, and I thought that uh, she shared so many stories about that. Tony, what's one that stood out to you in that area that, that you've really thought, man, that was a great nugget that we've, we've talked about on the show that she sort of was able to share with us? Yeah, I thought uh, she did a great job. And in, in sharing the story about Lisa Boyer and uh, Don Saley about how they were able to sit down and Lisa was able to tell Don, Hey, you know, your approach might not be perfect for, for today's student athlete. And, uh, you know, obviously Don took that into consideration and, and they were able to have that honest and clear communication where it was, you know, you know, Lisa wasn't being a yes person. And there was some, um, obviously some feedback back and forth saying, Hey, this is, there's a better way to do it. Uh, I think she also, Sue also referenced uh, Tara uh, Vanderveer at, at Stanford and taking a lot of information from a lot of, you know, of her sources of, of her, her committee, so to speak, as her assistant coaches or support staff. And I think that idea of hiring people that are smarter than you is, is, is the absolute way to get the best out of where you are. Um, that doesn't mean uh, everyone's smarter than you in every category. They just might have better emotional intelligence or better, um, attention to detail. It's important to know yourself enough to find where you're not maybe strong and making sure that you're bringing in people that can help you fill those gaps. And then also being willing uh, to have that loyal relationship where you're willing to listen to people that are maybe not going to agree with you. And then also be willing to take on that information and be willing to change what you're doing uh, to benefit the greater good. I think that, you know, at the same time as a leader, you need to be willing to serve those that work with you, your assistant coaches. And, and that may be just as simply as empowering them with the ability to approach you with ideas that are different or that are um, maybe outside the normal thought process, thinking out of the box, so to speak, to, to give uh, a greater uh, value to the decision that's made. So I think that team, that loyalty and that idea of, you know, having a committee of people around you that are uh, helpful and focused on the overall greater good versus each one individual agenda. I think those are, those are powerful pieces that, you know, any coach working their way up the ladder or someone who's at the top uh, are all they're, they're great pieces to take with you. Well, and I, I, I think, uh, you know, what, what Sue talked about in the early days, you know, Kim Mulkey and, and Louisiana Tech and, and, you know, that's kind of, I feel like I'm under that camp because I, I worked their basketball camps for years and, and it was the last year that, you know, Leon Barmore was the head coach and Kim Mulkey was the assistant before she went to Baylor. So, so I just feel, you know, that when she talked about, you know, Kim's been true to herself. Right. And, and, and I think that's, that's a lot of, of what, as, as just coaches, we, you know, we, we get this thing in our head, like, what does it look like and, and things like that. And, and the fact that her and Don are the exceptions to the rule of, you know, great players being able to then be great teachers and then now create great leaders through that process, I think is just, it's, it's huge. And, and I think one of the things that I've, I've always, you know, dabbled or, or tried to experiment with is, you know, like football has a model of, you know, where, you know, you got the head coach, you got coordinators, you got all of these position people like, you know, basketball never had that culture, you know, and I think basketball across the spectrum is so inconsistent. I mean, at the D division one level, you're guaranteed three assistants now most likely plus adobo you know and so you have your team that tony you're talking about right like you can you have these people that you can go to and and i think it's just a matter of time when they then outweigh maybe maybe another experience or or whatnot that's out there right like for the example that i i can give is you know when when i was the head coach of chandler gilbert it, it was it was different because i i had some great people with me um, but the experience wasn't the same as me. So it's kind of like, you know, the conversations were different. And, and sometimes I had to go out of house. And a lot of times I called you all to, to kind of just bounce ideas in terms of the experiment that I was having. But I think in the end, it's about as a coach individually, but then as a staff is just figuring out your rhythm, your voice, your, 
kind of your stride in the sense of, um, you know, what do we have to do? How can we teach the game better? Um, but then what she pointed out, you know, in terms of what those characteristics are is you got to be able to build the relationships with the players because in the end it's, it is about them. It is about their performance and, and what they can do for themselves in a career. And I, I think too, to add to that note, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the show, the, the, those, that, the relationship part of what we've all done and we referenced some of those stories. And, and I thought she really went out of her way uh, to mention that piece of the relational part of the profession. And as an observer of the game and a deep observer of the game, uh, I think she's, she's well poised to talk about that. And, and moving forward, and, we, and, and we, we ask the question, you know, what can be done? What do you see that can help a young coach? And I really want people to understand that point. That's not just people inside the industry like ourselves. That's someone who is an observer of our sport, of our craft, saying, listen, the best people that I've seen become the most successful are the ones that have the best and most in-depth relationships with their players. And, you know, those references that she made with, with, with Dawn and, the, and that mentorship that she received with Tara and her ability to pivot and adjust with Dick with deep relationships. And she mentioned all those names that have clearly been at it at a high, high level and have really been successful. And I just want to really stress that point that that relational part of what we do is going to be what's going to win you the day and you being authentic about it and intentional about it. Uh, I think Joy referenced that last week about that was the journey she kind of had to make a that transaction transition rather from player to coach and the, what that relationship looked like um, and and how now as she's gone along in her career uh, what that relationship has looked like and and how successful she's become as an assistant. So I really thought it was really cool that Sue, as an observer of what we do, referencing all the people that have had high levels high levels of success have been the ones that have had that sort of intentional relational piece. So that, that for me was, uh, was, was a highlight from that conversation we had. Yeah. And all the successful uh, stories and coaches that she touched upon, you know, they were able to adjust, adapt, uh, and be able to lean on their support staff uh, for those times of change and adapting. Uh, that's why those people are successful in what they're doing is our, the kids that we are bringing in, they're going to be changing every, it's a cycle. It's going to continue to change. Who knows 10 years from now, what the recruits are going to be coming in as freshmen. What it's just, there's a lot of adapting and adjusting that needs to happen. Uh, and you got to be willing to trust those people in your circle. And I'm glad she got the, uh, she shared some of her stories uh, and that's going to help. I think younger generations going to help. I think all of us here is, you know, our job is to have that open, honest communication uh, and our loyalty is to make sure we put the program first and the person we're working for, making sure that they see things from different angles. Now it's their choice and their job to make that final decision, but just don't be a yes person uh, just to be liked or to kind of just fall in line. I think if you have the heading, protect the program and just everything you do is to protect the program and putting your head coach or your coach in a position where they're going to look good and succeed. Um, and behind closed doors, that's when you can hash it out. I know Tony, I've had conversations with you. Uh, it might, we might not be the popular person in the room, but our <laughs> job and our loyalty is to our boss. And um, at the end of the day, whatever decisions made, we're going to walk out and we're going to all work and make that become a reality. And we're all going to go in the same direction, but you know, there is a time and place for those open and honest communications. And she shared with us those coaches who had done that uh, have become very, very successful over the years. And, and I wanted to add one more thing to that as well with, with the final points that, that Sue made about qualities, knowing the game. And I think as coaches, sometimes we get so infatuated with X's and O's and philosophies and different ways you want to play. We forget to study the history of our game. So we don't know, you know, when, 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 you know, we're making reference to the ABL, you know, and, and we're making reference to, you know, some players I'm sure that we've, we've coached and even coach young coaches right now might not even know what the heck that is. Um, 
you know, and, and obviously that being one of, you know, the major professional league before the WNBA, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Um, you know, so I think knowing the game isn't just necessarily knowing basketball as much as it maybe is knowing the history. You know, when we're talking about Leon Barmore, um, who helped bring, you know, uh, Louisiana Tech to, to the forefront of women's basketball. Obviously, you know, you, you have to understand, you know, some people might go, wait, Louisiana Tech, really? Like now? And so they have to go back. And, you know, in, in 1982, we're talking about Cheney State in the, uh, you know, in the, in the national championship game. And most people don't know that that's C. Vivian Stringer, the head coach at Rutgers, was the head coach of that, of that team. So the history of our game that, you know, are the coaches that are in place now versus coaches that were, you know, either they're finishing their careers now, you know, the, you know, obviously Pat Summit passed away and the Jody Conrads who, who, who finished at Texas and Marcia Sharper was at Texas Tech when Cheryl Swoops was there and they were, I mean, um, Sylvia Hatchell at North Carolina, some of these coaches that have been in the game for a very long time have, have finished coaching, have ended their careers. But I, you know, you, you want to make sure that the, young uh, coaches that are coming up understand that these pioneers are, are what allowed the game to be what it is today. And that uh, making sure that as coaches and leaders of programs, we're educating our players on the fact that they need to know, you know, know the game in the sense of where did, where did it come from? Where did we start? Appreciate that, Tony. That's so many good, so so many good points that you just brought up to to, to kind of wrap up our our thoughts with Sue. As we kind of uh, wrap up the show here, um, just going to take an opportunity, and, and we've sort of we we talked about it as as a group, and and I'm just going to kind of maybe wrap up the show with with kind of a one last thing, kind of on a topical thing that maybe we'll springboard into and down the road as a topic on the show, but. Uh, it's some thoughts that I've been having on the, uh, on the name and likeness legislation that's coming down the pipe and, and just some interesting things and some conversations that we've, we've been having. Uh, and, and just to kind of give a backstory, you know, the NCAA attorneys uh, had previously described that this legislation that both Colorado and California had passed allowing athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness as unconstitutional and likely to be invalidated. However, 18 member working group submits its recommendations last week saying that the student athletes are going to be able to monetize. That was their recommendation name likeness. The NCA board of governors reverses that move last week and they supported those recommendations. So we find that divisions one, two, and three by October 31st, will have to finalize their legislation at their division. That vote will go to proposal vote. will go to vote in January with the new rules going into effect in 21 and 22. Now, there's a lot of work to be done here, clarifying, implementing, but the basic framework is that student athletes will be allowed to profit from, profit from their endorsement, from social media, from autograph signings, et cetera, and interestingly enough, be allowed to use an agent to help them in these endeavors. The NCA, its conferences and schools are not gonna be allowed to facilitate those opportunities. However, the association does want to include, quote, guide guard rails to make sure that the compensation is at fair market value. They're also hoping that they avoid situations where boosters can influence recruits to certain schools where those schools would promise a third party endorsement, endorsement deal. I'd like to dive into that a little bit more. As I, as I did some research on this, it's interesting uh, that third, some of these athletes would be very difficult for them to necessarily get a third-party endorsement deal as a college athlete. However, uh, in conversations with my 15-year-old son, we talked about the ability to earn money through social media. And I had him recently explain that to me, and I think I have a lot more to learn about how we all can make social media money off our social media accounts, but maybe we'll have him on later to explain that. Uh, in a recent article on Athletic Director U, Navigate Research uh, has compiled a list of some of, the, of college sports' most valuable student athletes based on yearly endorsement revenue potential. The list included sampling of athletes that are at the top of their respective sports. One potentially interesting uh, of the analysis was that many or most of the popular female athletes would be able to generate as much, if not more, in endorsement revenue than their male counterparts based on their research. 
Using Instagram followers, for example, the researchers found that the UCLA women's gymnastics team alone could bring in $1.25 million annually in endorsement revenue. In women's basketball, incoming freshman Haley Van Lick with over 60,000 Instagram followers and Paige Buchers with over 400,000 followers could have the potential to earn between $300,000 and $500,000 a year in endorsements. In a recent interview, uh, Jim Cavell, CEO of the social media app Influencer said, this is the reality of the influencer marketing on social media. He added that many factors that determine social media's value, uh, but, but this alone, when you talk about number of followers, that is the biggest thing that opens door for these income opportunities that did not exist previously. So guys, an active YouTube channel, Instagram TV channel, TikTok account could become a side business for all college student athletes now. And it appears that the NCAA is now willing to let that happen. And I, for one, applaud the decision. Until next time, that's it from the bench.